And given the fact that so many customers today, big customers, have made net zero commitments themselves, it does create this uh, relationship with them where we work together to help them achieve their goals while we achieve our own, and ultimately, the goals of the planet. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome back to Demystifying the Carbon Markets on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Grilly, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Susanna Pierce, Country Chair Canada and General Manager for Renewables and Energy Solutions at Shell. Hello, Susanna. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, many corporations have made net zero commitments during the past few years, and many are now working on translating those commitments into credible plans for achieving net zero. Shell's commitment to be net zero by 2050 covers all the energy that you sell, scopes one, two, and three. And that's a big deal because Shell's scope three emissions, the emissions from people like me using the energy you sell, is over 90% of your emissions. So I wanted to start off today asking, why did Shell choose that level of ambition? Thank you, David, and, and thanks for the opportunity to be on the show today. Uh, it's, a, it's an important question um, because for us, indeed, it's a, it's a significant level of ambition. When companies talk about net zero, very often they're talking about the emissions that they create when they consume energy, for example. That would be scope one when they buy power or the emissions they create in the production of whatever it is that they're making. But for us, we're actually saying, as you said, we, we're actually trying to tackle our customers' emissions. And that's, that's difficult because it's not really in our control 100%. But we recognized the significance of Shell in the energy system. And when we think about all of the energy that Shell uh, sells to customers, it's about 5% of world consumption of energy. And so for us, we have a significant opportunity, I think, to have a role in significant carbon emissions reductions by working with customers. We also recognize that our future business depends on working with customers as they decarbonize. So driving lower carbon solutions for us is the market opportunity as well. So in short, our survival depends on giving our customers the type of energy that they need. And given the fact that so many customers today, big customers, have made net zero commitments themselves, it does create this uh, relationship with them where we work together to help them achieve their goals while we achieve our own and ultimately the goals of the planet. And of course, many other corporations are now also working through how to turn their own climate commitments into strategies, plans, milestones. Can you walk us through how you've done this at Shell and what were some of the bigger challenges in that process? Shell thought about how we are going to uh, continue to have a sustainable business in light of the Paris Agreement we had to take a look at what is our existing business today and how does it need to change. We also had to consider the needs of society more broadly. And what I mean by that is, as we look to transition the energy system, we need to also pay attention to how that transition impacts people who are in the least or have the, the least capacity uh, to pay for challenges that might come as a result of that. So we need to consider affordability. 
today, in light of what we see happening in the world and war in Ukraine, we also have to consider energy security. But for us at the time, it was really driven by an idea or an understanding that the world is changing in terms of the energy that it needs. It needs to be lower carbon and the world is growing. And so we need to find a way of pivoting our business to that. So we developed a strategy we call Powering Progress. We released it in 2021 and it's built on four key goals. The first of which for a company like ours is to continue to generate shareholder value. So we need to continue to have an investment case to, to have investors give us money that then we can give them a return on. We want to, again, consider how we can make sure that the energy that we provide is affordable and reliable for people. We want to make sure, though, as we do provide that energy, that we can achieve our net zero commitments. And then finally, we also recognize the role of nature uh, and the environment in terms of producing sustainable energy. So there's a relationship also with how we can reduce other types of environmental impacts, including clean water use, including the impact on biodiversity, the circular economy. So we stood back and we said we have four key goals, generate shareholder value, focus on powering lives, achieve net zero, and respect the environment. With these four goals, which really is a combination of business strategy and social responsibility, we then said, now let's look at our business. So we have three real key pillars of our business. We have our upstream business, a traditional business, that's your oil and gas. We have our transition business, which is integrated gas as well as chemicals. And then our growth business, which is really looking at renewables, carbon capture sequestration, hydrogen and lower carbon fuels, and nature-based systems. And we recognized that the ability of us to continue to supply energy today and to generate revenues from that will help us then fund the transition business and the growth business. So we need to have a very careful calibration between each of those three pillars to make sure we're working with society to achieve those four goals of our, of our great strategy. So really it's taking a step back, looking at where society is going, where the climate needs us to go, looking at existing business and finding the right calibration between the three pillars so that we can provide energy today, but then continue to transition and meet our goals of powering progress. And your transition pillar, it includes uh, the use of natural gas. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about why you believe shifting to natural gas should be a part of achieving net zero. Yes, the um, shift to natural gas is really recognition that um, when we think about lower carbon energy today, we are pivoting from an oil and gas company to more of a gas company because we see gas as a better alternative for some sectors that are hard to electrify and hard to decarbonize, but then also as an important um, fuel for power plants, for electricity, when you still have intermittency with renewable power. What we see happening actually in the world today, and you see it in Germany and you see it in China, is that there continues to be a fallback on coal-fired power. So the better alternative, of course, is natural gas. We see that today and we see that into the future until we get to a point of, of greater amount of storage. So for us, the shift to natural gas is a shift away from oil. It's a shift to gas that can provide backup power to intermittent renewables. And it's a shift of using natural gas for harder to decarbonize sectors where it could be used as LNG for fuels or LNG for shipping, LNG for bunkering and things like that. So it is a pivot to natural gas. Uh, and it's one that I think is necessary over the course of the next couple of decades. And while natural gas emits less than half the carbon that coal emits in power generation, so that, that switch is much cleaner, its green credentials have been called into question recently because of the issue of methane or natural gas being released during production and transport. Do you believe the industry can handle the issue of methane release and, and how's the best way for them to do that? Well, first off, the industry must. Uh, there's no question that we have to, uh, the oil and gas sector, and then, and then all uh, who contribute to methane emissions must because of the potency of methane. 
I would say that for for Canada, uh, the country in which uh, I come from, you know, there is significant leadership in this area. And, and frankly, there was a COP26 where there was the global methane pledge, which was to reduce global emissions by 30% um, by a number of countries. And in Canada, I'll give you the example, we have a commitment to reduce methane emissions 75% uh, by 2030. But we're already advanced in that regard. And we're advanced because we have technology which we can employ. We're also benefiting, I think, to a large extent in Canada from hydro-based electricity systems. So we have the ability to go from pneumatic drives and I sector to electric valves. So we have the ability to actually decarbonize and to reduce our methane emissions right now with existing technology. It's a function of rolling it out and accelerating it, but it's a must do. And I think we're on the pathway to do that uh, and do it for our sector, but then also look at what we could do for other sectors as well. And that brings up the point that, you know, not only do net zero plans have to be effective, they also have to be seen to be credible by stakeholders. And I'd love to know how you're approaching that credibility challenge um, at Shell. I noticed that earlier in your career, you worked with diverse groups of stakeholders and community groups, you know, on Canadian LNG projects. And I was curious if that experience offers lessons in, you know, creating consensus among stakeholders that you might find useful now. It's a, it's a great, uh, great question, in part because one of the things I think our industry has suffered from is a lack of trust. And frankly, any big industry, to an extent, suffers from from, from trust issues. And with respect to my experience at LNG Canada, I lived by the principle that transparency is the currency of trust. I wasn't the one who coined the expression, but I lived by it. And therefore, you need to make sure that the communities where you operate, in this case, many indigenous communities where we were looking to partner uh, and build our facility, we wanted to make sure they understood what we were trying to do and we worked together to do it. And then in particular, where we were trying to do difficult things, um, that again, we were very open with what was happening. In the case for our company on, on GHGs and, and any company, frankly, as it relates to environmental issues, we need to be upfront about it. And, and we need to make sure that there is a clear understanding and a credible understanding of, of what the real impacts are. And so in the case of greenhouse gases, for Shell, our company, we've developed or we use the net carbon footprint metric and methodology to assess our carbon intensity of of our fuels, and that's the emissions that we produce and we sell to our customers. And that starts, you know, at least with an agreement, okay, this is how you're measuring it. And then as a function of, well, now let's make sure that you're reporting against it. Let's understanding where you start, and then let's get into a regular, uh, regular drumbeat of when you're reporting in a way that is, is credible, can be assured by third parties, and that you build confidence that there's nothing that, that's really being missed. So with respect to what Shell has done also as part of its strategy, we were the first to come forward to our shareholders and provide to them our energy transition strategy and put it to a vote. Say, this is what we're planning to do. So we also have the ability for our shareholders to know quite clearly what we're doing and put it to a vote. Then we will report against our success. So as we've set these targets towards net zero, we will come back every year and show how we're doing. We'll also come back every three years and update our strategy. We've also tied our executive compensation for thousands of folks in our organization to what we're doing to actually reduce emissions. So they are also compelled to act. So coming back to the, the first part of your question, for me, it is about the relationship with stakeholders. It's founded on trust and an understanding that we will be right up front with how we're doing uh, to maintain that relationship over time.
So transparency is the currency of trust. I, I like that line. I'm going to have to steal that as well. I wanted to return for a moment to the, the meeting the scope three emissions targets. This requires Shell not only to supply lower carbon energy sources, but also consumers having made investments in the new plant, the new equipment, the new vehicles that can use these lower carbon energy sources. Uh, how big a, of a hurdle is that? And how is Shell working with its customers to overcome that hurdle? Well, I think the um, the hurdle is less high today than it was maybe even two years ago. And part of the reason for that is we're beginning to see, as I mentioned earlier, that customers have their own net zero commitments. They've made very public uh, commitments to reduce their emissions. Whereas in the past, we could produce all the clean energy in the world. We know how to do it. But if nobody's buying that clean energy, then we're not creating an economic value to our shareholders. So for us, the important thing we see now is that customers and Shell can work together to design solutions for them to decarbonize. It requires an affordable alternative than what they're using. It requires an investment in technology in many circumstances. But because we've started with some shared goals, we now have the ability to work back and decide, well, what are the constraints? What are the enablers? How can we find a way of, if in the case of hydrogen, creating hydrogen that is at least price equivalent to the alternative that you might buy, such as diesel? And so we have now started with a customer back, and then we can look across the entire ecosystem, particularly within different types of sectors. So whether that's um, heavy duty transport, marine or aviation, and say, okay, how do we work back from you customer? And then find the pathways for you to decarbonize. Importantly, the role of government is critical because the government has the ability to establish regulations as well as to drive fiscal incentives. So a little bit of the stick and the carrot, which can help enable the transition more effectively and helps us as producers find ways of saying, okay, it's more economic for us to produce a lower carbon fuel because we would either pay a carbon tax or we'll be able to generate a, a credit. And for customers, it enables them to see, okay, we can actually buy this fuel because the producer's creating it and it gives them more certainty. So it creates a new type of relationship that, again, is great because it's a much better starting point than where we've ever been. The role of government is absolutely crucial because in a world where we need to accelerate the transition, really think about between now and 2030, we cannot do it on our own. But we're starting in a better place today than we were two years ago. But again, there's, there's no doubt, there's a real sense of urgency and a demand that we work even closer together than we ever have. And how does that translate down uh, to the retail level? Thinking like, you know, a person like myself of driving a car or using electricity or all the other sources of energy, I imagine there'll be, you know, increased use of biofuels as part of the plan, increased use of electrification. But of course, will I have the car that can do that? So I was just curious how you're thinking about the retail level as well. Well, we think about that quite a lot because when you think about Shell, you think about Shell gas stations, many of us. You drive up and you see the pumps. But we also see the role of government mandates for zero emissions vehicles, again, which are mandating the manufacturers create zero emissions vehicles. So for you and me, uh, in time, probably by mid-2030s, we will be driving a zero emissions vehicles in part because the, uh, the, the manufacturers have had to create it to sell these vehicles. So you and I will have that choice. So we need to keep pace with that and make sure that as we're looking at where, what type of energy these vehicles uh, consume, that we're putting those pumps at our stations. So I'll give you an example, which is interesting because 
you know, this is an example of where we as Shell maybe got a little bit ahead of our, our retail customers. I live in Vancouver, BC, and we've had a number of hydrogen pumps at our retail stations here. The challenge we've had in BC is that nobody's really driving hydrogen cars. There's a few, but not enough. So when we think about putting hydrogen pumps in those retail stations, we're basically taking away those pumps from serving customers what they typically buy, gasoline or diesel, and we're putting hydrogen pumps there. Well, if nobody's driving hydrogen cars, then that's not a great investment at this point in time. However, that will change with zero emissions vehicles because we'll see more hydrogen cars, we'll see more electric vehicles. And so that will mean at the retail stations, we need to keep pace with that. And that's what we're doing. We're rolling out thousands of EV chargers at our stations. And if you're in California, you'll see hydrogen as well. And we're looking to do the same uh, for hydrogen uh, where I am at right now in Vancouver too. And it sounds like it's really going to be that concerted effort between companies like Shell, typical person on the street like myself and government policymakers and manufacturers of vehicles all kind of trying to get to the, the common goal. I wanted to ask you, in addition to avoiding and reducing emissions, uh, Shell's plan also calls for mitigating the emissions that do occur by capturing and offsetting them. How are you approaching obtaining high quality offsets from carbon reduction projects? Thank you. The question is really important because I think that there can be quite a misunderstanding around the role of offsets or carbon. First, what do we do to avoid emissions? What can we do with the existing production that we have today to reduce emissions? But in the absence of that, we do need to look to the role of carbon credits or carbon offsets, which enable us to invest in projects that can actually offset the emissions that we weren't able to eliminate. So essentially the residual emissions. Now for some of the challenge around carbon offsets today has been a question about whether or not these carbon emission removals are real. Can they be measured? Are they permanent? Like, for example, in trees, if you capture carbon, is it permanent if the trees burn down? Are they additional, meaning like would this emissions reduction have happened otherwise? And can they be verified and unique? I think that's very important. Those key criteria are crucial to it. And those are the types of offsets and credits that we would invest in because we do need them to be credible. But it's critical to understand that as we're looking to really make such a significant transition in a short period of time and of an energy system that's been around for 100 years, we will not be able to do it without looking to the role of offsets when you're not able to avoid or reduce your emissions. So these are things, again, that meet those criteria that enable, in the case of, let's say, forestry for certain jurisdictions of the world, a new revenue stream for trees that could be forested and therefore not foresting gives that particular community a revenue stream that they would not otherwise see. But that also benefits the climate if they don't take down the trees. So it's a really important lever. It's not one that you should go to first, but it is absolutely critical, I think, for us to be successful in meeting our goals under the Paris Agreement. And so, yeah, Shell looks to it as an important part of our strategy. Uh, last year, I think we invested about $100 million in looking at nature-based offsets, and we're continuing to look at additional offsets that we can provide, in particular for Scope 3 for our customers, and looking to about 120 million tons by about 2030 to help reduce Scope 3 emissions. And, you know, much of the investment that's occurring globally in the carbon reduction projects is still very, you know, bespoke, bilateral agreements between project developers and and companies and, and relatively long term. You know, you mentioned some of what you look for in a carbon reduction project. It sounds like more of the nature-based projects. But, you know, if there's anything you could go into more there, you know, I'd be really curious. 
Sure. Well, as it relates to, let me just speak about a project that we've had here in British Columbia, and it, it speaks maybe directly to the earlier question about retail, but we partnered with the Nature Conservancy and we developed a forest offset project called Darkwoods. And so when you pull up to a pump at Shell and you fill up your car, you're able to actually offset your emissions. So our scope three, your scope one, you're able to offset your emissions by purchasing carbon offsets actually on your phone and your app. Your app. And so that's an example of something that is working for you on a voluntary basis that you can voluntarily decide to reduce your emissions based on a commitment that we have made. And so these, are, these sorts of opportunities are beginning to grow. Again, they have to come from real projects, as I mentioned, that are verifiable, measurable, et cetera. But we're beginning to see more and more because I think there's an understanding about the urgency and the need for carbon offsets. But I also think we're beginning to actually get better at building out the protocols and, and making sure that we really understand what we're buying and what we're offsetting. And I'm sure many people uh, have seen uh, the work of Mark Carney, who used to be governor of Bank of Canada here, but the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets talked a lot about what the opportunity was. And I think they suggest that the market could be more than 50 billion uh, by 2030. So you see the growth there, again, needs to be underpinned by real projects. And so that's quite exciting. And I would also say this, and this maybe comes back to the strategy piece I mentioned earlier called Powering Progress. I'm pretty proud and excited by the opportunity that we would have in looking at, in this case, forest carbon offsets for particular communities that can drive these income streams by not taking down their trees, not foresting their trees. Community that we work with here is the Chilcolton First Nation. We're planting approximately 800,000 trees. And at some point in time, those trees will now enable them to capture carbon, but then also hopefully monetize that. And that creates that new income stream. So again, lots of development underway. I think the function of the carbon markets for offsets is going to continue to grow. And it needs to be underpinned again by real projects that are investable. But I'm quite bullish about it. Right. And you said, you know, as Mark Carney's task force and others point to carbon markets becoming you know, very large markets in, in the future. And of course, they're small today, small and growing very rapidly. And I think a lot of their success will be underpinned by commercial users like yourselves, finding them useful and finding them a good part of meeting your goals. And so I wanted to know, what are some of the things that you think would make carbon markets more useful for companies like Shell looking to make their net zero goals? And maybe how would you like to see these markets develop so that they would be more useful to your commercial needs? Well, indeed, I mean, I think there is a process of developing the carbon markets. And as I mentioned earlier, the important thing is that these are real incredible offsets opportunities. And so as part of the carbon markets, you need to see that there are third parties that are verifying these projects that we would be investing in. So there's third parties out there that we look to, such as Vera, the American Carbon Registry, Gold Standard, Climate Action Reserve, that provide a level of assurance uh, on the standards that we use for these projects. So that's really absolutely crucial. There is an important role, I believe, of individual project developers and nations. And uh, maybe I'll shift a bit to things like Article 6, where Article 6 enables trade between nations so that you're transferring, in this case, nationally determined contributions. So if I invest in a carbon offset project in one nation, it reduces uh, the emissions there, we could begin to trade that emissions credit back. That's an interesting uh, element as well that I think is important as I look at individual projects that Shell might have a one country that can't reduce much further than 
then a particular level, how can we work with our governments to begin to trade under Article 6? I think that's another element I very much look forward to. You know, and I think there's other types of projects that I'm quite interested in, I think is evolving as well. And it's the role of soil carbon sequestration. I'm quite interested and excited to see that develop because it's very much connected to regenerative farming. And this is a piece where farming practices have a significant role either to play in uh, providing a sink for carbon or not. And so the farming practices that we could look to also, and then potentially beginning to measure the carbon in soil creates a new type of potential offset opportunity, driving regenerative farming practices, increases forest product, farming productivity, but then also enables a new type of potential carbon offset, which has that virtuous circle of better farming, better productivity, more carbon capture sequestration. So that's another element that I'm really looking forward to see evolve. A lot of this has to do with the technology. A lot of this has to do with the practice. A lot of this has to do with the ability to establish the protocols. And then you can begin to get into a place of trading and making these types of investments. So I think we're just at the beginning of a very exciting time of looking at what we can do to leverage things like nature to help us meet our climate commitments. Again, it's something corporately we look at in terms of offsets as a third part, but it's a necessary part. And when you add on these additional benefits, more productive farming, revenue streams to communities that wouldn't otherwise get it, it's a necessary part of a climate strategy. Thanks again to Susanna Pierce, Country Chair Canada and General Manager Renewables and Energy Solutions at Shell. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please join us next week with our guest Corinne Boone, a true climate market pioneer and current Group Head Americas at Air Carbon. This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.